Hello, and welcome to the Cato Institute Studio, live here in Washington, D.C. I'm Kat Murthy, Cato's Senior Digital Outreach Manager, and I'm sitting here with Michael D. Tanner, one of Cato's Senior Policy Fellows and author of the new book, The Inclusive Economy, How to Bring Wealth to America's Poor. In the book, Michael argues that conventional anti-poverty policy here in the United States focuses far too much on making poverty less miserable and not nearly enough on helping the poor escape cycles of generational poverty. He also takes both liberals and conservatives to task for overlooking the structural causes of generational poverty, including racism, gender inequality, and economic dislocation. But perhaps most importantly, he lays out an important roadmap for a new anti-poverty pro program, which would focus on criminal justice reform, banking reform, educational freedom, housing deregulation, and new and increased economic opportunities and growth. This is a really crucial discussion, and it's one that we want you all to be a part of. If you're watching this video live on Facebook, please feel free to leave your questions for Michael in the comments below the video. Otherwise, you can tweet your questions using Cato Connects, uh, hashtag Cato Connects. You can also find me on Twitter as at Murthy or Michael as M. Tanner Cato. So, Michael, first off, congratulations on the book release. Thank you. Yeah, I know. It, it's come out less than a week ago. Um, it's already making waves. I think uh, the day of its release, it was the number one in a number one new release in socials, uh, social sciences and welfare on Amazon. As of today, it's the number one new release in macroeconomics. Uh, that's a very unusual <laughs> overlap of interests. Um, but I think it's one that a lot of libertarians uh, can identify with. And so I think that that really brings up the elephant in the room here. There's a stereotype that libertarians sort of deify the wealthy and hate the poor for being poor. But that's not at all the message that I got from the inclusive economy or other books uh, or research or commentary that you've written. In fact, in the inclusive economy, you make a point about poor blaming or poor shaming and suggest that it's not so much the people want to be poor because they're lazy, but because of the structures and the incentives around them. Can you speak to that a little bit? Well, I do think that there's a stereotype that libertarians are either indifferent to the poor or actively dislike them. And it's often because too much of discussion around anti-poverty policy centers on what does a government program mean to me as a taxpayer? I don't want to pay higher taxes for this particular program, therefore the program is bad, and not enough concern for what does that program mean in terms of the poor. But the reality is most people became libertarians, at least I'm sure I became a libertarian, because I believe in the individual dignity and worth of every person. And that I want to see human flourishing. That is, every person able to rise as far as their individual talents will take them. And in order to do that, we need to have policies that enable them to become part of the economy, to become self-sufficient, self-supporting, able to take care of themselves and their families. That's what good policy, good libertarianism should be about. Right. So you see this very much an extension of your libertarianism. Well, that's right. And particularly when you look at the fact that much of what holds poor people down is government. You know, just because I believe in the dignity of poor people doesn't mean that I somehow want to support new government programs. In fact, I would say if you look back, most of the problems are from government programs, whether intentionally, there's certainly a history of that in this country, or unintentionally, just good intentions gone bad. 
So let's take a minute to talk about the current anti-poverty programs here in the United States that the U.S. government promotes. Uh, are they all bad? Are they working at all? Well, it's very hard to tell what works and what doesn't, largely because we have so many of them and, so, and with such contradictory rules and regulations, eligibility levels, and so on. The federal government uh, has more than 100 anti-poverty programs, if you define them either as means-tested programs or programs that say this is an anti-poverty program, uh, that we spend about $700 billion at the federal level every year and about another $300 billion at the state level. So we're spending close to a trillion dollars every year on anti-poverty programs. Now, there's no doubt that these programs reduce poverty rates somewhat. I mean, even as inefficient uh, an entity as the federal government can't spend a trillion dollars without doing something. I mean, if you flew over the country in an airplane and shoveled money out of the back of it, you'd, you'd lower poverty somewhat. People would be somewhat. less poor, right. <laughs> you know, so, so we give them some credit for that. On the other hand, if you go to a poor community, you go to Southeast D.C. or Sandtown in Baltimore where Freddie Gray was killed, or Owsley, Kentucky, the poorest community in America, and you look at these communities and you say, are these thriving? Are the people here really rising as far as they can go? Are we really helping people get out of poverty? And the answer's got to be no. So despite revolving uh, around traditionally eco uh, economic issues like welfare reform or entitlement programs, much of your career you've really focused on how government programs negatively impact marginalized people. And I sort of see the inclusive economy as an extension of that and sort of centering that as the, as the key part of this research. Um, is there a reason why you decided to publish this book now? Well, this is actually a result of about four years of research and writing, so it does go back a ways. But I do think it's particularly important right now, in part because people who are of color, uh, poor, poor people, women are increasingly marginalized right now in the, the way politics are going today. And particularly, I, I find disturbing the fact that there are some libertarians out there that have sort of piled on. And I think it's really important that people understand that libertarians do care about those communities that are most in need. Look, the rich are always going to be rich. You know, I, I really don't waste a lot of time worrying about what policies are going to do for the rich because they'll be just fine no matter how stupid our policies are. But if we have something really stupid out there that hurts the poor, they're suffering. And I, and I just don't think that, that we can stand by and let that happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think you've said in the past, like, uh, people who are wealthy, no matter what we do with these policies, are not really going to be impacted in a meaningful way. But the people who are at the margins, the people who are poorest, those are the people who are really hurt. And given our history, the fact that so much government policy has targeted poor people or people of color, uh, we really owe it to them to have policies that are actually going to help or at least get the government out of the way and stop stomping on their neck. Absolutely. So two of the key factors that you really talk about contributing to the cycle of generational poverty in the inclusive economy are structural racism and sexism. Now, those terms have sort of been affiliated with the progressive left for a long time, but you make a strong libertarian case that this is actually a matter of the U.S. government, the American government, historically putting its finger on the scale in favor of, for the most part, white men. And even in the areas in which those policies, those laws have now 
been changed so that they allow people an actual free chance to compete in our economy, we still see uh, many cultural echoes that are holding women and uh, racial minorities back. Can you speak to that a little bit? Right. We can't pretend that there's a level playing field today. Just because we passed some civil rights laws doesn't mean that all the results of past discrimination went, went away. I mean, look, you can go all the way back and suggest that uh, it's been estimated that slavery cost African-Americans over $7 trillion in lost wages. Then you have additional losses that they suffered in terms of wages and capital uh, during Jim Crow. And, of course, there's ongoing discrimination today. All of that means they have less capital in terms of financial capital, but also less intellectual capital. I mean, if you, you know, if uh, educated African-Americans were lynched or discriminated against uh, it's going to be more difficult for their children and grandchildren to be educated today. All of that has to be and taken into account. And community ties to help them get that leg up, perhaps sure. when they're starting out. And we should look at the fact that government policies are still punishing African Americans today. Our criminal justice system is highly biased uh, against people of color, but also simply on a class basis. Low-income people certainly suffer more. Are there, are there other policies uh, that are active still today that you think feed into these uh, cycles of structural uh, sexism or racism? or well, Look at something like zoning laws. Zoning laws were originally explicitly racial. Uh, I think the first zoning law was actually in L.A., but the second zoning, major zoning ordinance in this country was in Baltimore, and it actually made it uh, against the law to sell a house or rent an apartment on a block that was, that was majority white to an African-American family. Uh, those laws yeah. still block out people of color or low-income people uh, today, from moving to areas that have fewer, more jobs, uh, less crime, better schools, yeah, basically uh, something like zoning can ra raise the cost of rent by as much as 50 percent in some areas of this country. That's hugely discriminatory. What's really interesting here to me um, is that the fact that even though a lot of liberals agree with both of us on these structural causes and the ways in which government really has sort of held people back from being able to compete freely, according to you, they nonetheless entrench these policies in their attempts at creating anti-poverty programs. Can you explain a little bit about how that happens? Well, first, they try to paper it over simply by throwing money at the problem. And these sort of structural problems are not easily solvable simply by spending a few more dollars on food stamps or a few more dollars on some other program uh, along the way. But second, they put this naive faith in government. It's government that's actually oppressed people of color and low-income people and women over the years. And yet the left seems to turn around and say, well, the answer to that is to give more power to government. Uh, that, that seems illogical to me. Right. Yeah, it seems a little bit circum... Uh, so let's uh, let's talk about the sequence uh, the sequence of success. Now that's an idea that's embraced by a lot of conservatives and even some libertarians. It's sort of this idea that if you wait to complete high school and get married before you have children, you're essentially guaranteed a seat out of the cycle of poverty. Uh, but you say that's not exactly true. Well, we know that there's a strong statistical correlation between the success sequence uh, and being outside of poverty. And the success sequence basically says finish school, don't drop out of high school, then get a job, then get married, and only then have kids. And we know that few, very few people who do all of that in that order actually end up in poverty. Uh, on the other hand, it, it sort of ignores the circumstances in which people make those decisions. It's relatively easy for someone who's living in the suburbs or a middle-class family to follow that success sequence. Uh, it is much more difficult if you live in an area that has few jobs, in which the school system is lousy, in which uh, the police hassle you every time you step outside your door. 
You know, just take one example from that, the idea that you should wait until you get married to have children. We know that you're about five times more likely to end up in poverty if you're a single parent than if you're married and, and have children or don't have children at all. Uh, on the other hand, if you have a criminal justice system that, as William Julius Wilson has noted, takes a million and a half young black men out of the marriage pool because they're tied up in the criminal justice system in jail, on probation, have a criminal record that prevents them from getting a job, the question is, who are these poor women supposed to marry? You know, there, there's not a great number of men out there that, that can support a family uh, that they're going to marry, and sex being sort of a natural thing that goes on between men and women, uh, you're going to end up with children being born outside of marriage. Right. You're essentially telling people the solution is to go find a husband, but there aren't necessarily husbands, either as a numbers game, just simply because so many people have been taken out of the system, whether by the criminal justice system or other such things, or simply the fact that maybe these aren't the kinds of husbands that do prevent you from being in the cycle of poverty, right? Yeah, right. we sort of have this assumption that the, the sort of traditional 1950s-style heterosexual marriage, monogamous and all of that, is, is going to be the model that works in every case. And, and the, the fact is that's not always available and it's not always the model that works. Absolutely. So... You don't just complain about the ways in which policy doesn't work in this book. One of the things that I really like about it is that you lay out a very detailed five-point plan for how we can actually help uh, the poor escape poverty and empower themselves to sort of pursue the life that they would prefer. Uh, what, what are those five points and how are we going to do it? Well, I think, first of all, we need to have criminal justice reform. We need to stop the over-criminalization that takes place in America. Let's remember that Eric Garner died for the crime of selling an untaxed cigarette. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, the fact is, you know, there's the war on drugs. There's a host of regulations can be broken. For far too many women and others, there, there's the laws against sex work and so on. There's a host of things that penalize uh, people in our society, particularly low-income people who are striving to make a living under very difficult circumstances. Uh, this overcriminalization leaves people with criminal records. They get, get arrested when you're 20, get a felony conviction, and you're later on when you're 40, you're applying for a job. You've got to check that little box that says you've got an arrest record, and it makes it very hard for you to get that job. Right. You don't even get to go have the interview and make your case for why. That's right. In many cases, it also can yeah. block you from getting a renting an apartment. It can block you from getting a scholarship or going getting into some colleges. Or as we discussed, you know, the California wildfires where they had folks going out, they had right. incarcerated people going out to volunteer with the fire departments, put out these fires. They have frontline experience putting out wildfires in California, but the state of California will not allow them to be firefighters once they finish their terms. That's right. In many cases, licensing for a host of, of uh, businesses and jobs uh, you can't get if you have a criminal conviction. So the, the overcriminalization basically takes these people out of the labor market, out of the marriage market, and, and that's going to leave a whole lot of people in poverty. So criminal justice is a huge part of this. What else needs to change? The educational system. Look, you're, you're, if you, the idea that you could drop out of high school, go down to the local factory and get a job to support your family is long gone. You know, the, the, that's not going to come back uh, no matter what Donald Trump says. We're not getting those type of jobs back. And, and you need skills that are available for the new economy. And that requires an educational system that prepares people for the future. Uh, but our monopoly government-run school system essentially leaves far too many people behind, particularly in low-income and minority communities. Uh, we pour money into schools and inner cities, and yet if you go to places like Chicago or L.A. or Baltimore, 
what you're going to find is that very, you know, huge numbers of children don't graduate, and those that graduate are not prepared to go to college or for jobs of the future. And people are trapped in schools that don't fit their needs, that don't work for them. And because of our, again, I mean, this ties together, right? Because we have schools that are tied to where you live because where yeah. you live has been limited historically. People sort of get trapped into these bad schools that they're not allowed to go find a different school that would actually be able to help them. In some cases, it's actually a crime to send your child to a school outside of your assigned school district. Uh, so, I mean... Uh, yeah, we, we sort of lock poor people into these ghettos that have lousy schools and no jobs, and then we say, well, gee, how come you're not getting a better education? Right, yeah, it must be your fault. It's because you're lazy. <laughs> um, yeah, so what what else would you change? Well, I also think we need to do change housing laws. As I mentioned earlier, that we need to deal with zoning laws and land use laws that drive up the cost of, of rent, in some cases adding 10 20 even 50% to the cost of rent in some uh, areas of the country. Uh, we need to basically look at those laws, regulations, and get rid of those that are not necessary to health and safety and allow people to uh, be able to have more affordable rent. Uh, we need to look at banking laws that prevent poor people from opening bank accounts. Our, our inordinate fear of terrorism and drug, uh, the drug war means that it's, uh, we have, have to produce certain types of ID in order to open a bank account. People worry a lot about ID laws when it comes to voting and such, but mm -hmm. it's actually just as difficult to open a bank account. About 20% of poor people don't have the proper ID to, to be able to, be to, able to do that. bank, right. right? So then they can't save the money, they can't, yeah, and it's just it's sort of all like the problems with that if you don't have saving. In our welfare system, actually, itself actually prefers consumption over savings. If, if you get a welfare check and you spend it all, we're perfectly fine with that. But if you put some of that money away, for your kid's education or to, you know, to buy some tools for a business or something like that, oh, then we're going to take your welfare check away because you have assets. So that's actually a huge part of the problem with our current welfare programs. They trap people into either being on welfare forever or losing it entirely because of the incentive structure. You know, folks uh, aren't able to go get a job because of the way that welfare is structured. The highest marginal tax rates that anyone faces in this country isn't a millionaire. It is actually somebody who leaves welfare and takes that first entry-level job. You know, they start paying taxes, uh, the payroll tax anyway, on the first dollar they earn. Uh, they then have to, uh, they start losing benefits. As soon as you earn a dollar, you start losing some of your, your welfare benefits, and you incur the expenses of going to work. Now, transportation, child care, clothing, and so on. You can actually end up worse off financially if you take a job than you were on welfare. And, you know, poor people aren't lazy, but they're also not stupid. If you're going to get paid less to work a job than you were staying home, they're going to stay home. Right, of course. Who wouldn't, right? That's right. Somebody wants to offer me, you know, more than money that I'm making right now and says you don't have to come in tomorrow. I'm, I'm <laughs> going to talk to them about it. Of course. Of course you would. Um, so I see some questions coming in on Twitter and Facebook. I want to encourage everybody who's watching online, please do post your questions in the Facebook comments on this video if you're watching on Facebook. Otherwise, you can tweet it using hashtag CatoConnects. Um, Benjamin McLean asks, if racism or sexism are structural rather than individual and ideological, and if the basic structure of our society seems mostly fine, doesn't that mean that the so-called racism and sexism in this new structural sense must not be bad? Well, I, I think if you are going to be picked up by the police for crimes that white people are not going to be picked up for, if you're going to be sentenced to longer terms in jail for the same crime as, as a white person might, uh, might encounter, 
uh, if you're going to not be rented to because of the color of your skin, if you're going to be less likely to be hired because uh, people interpret your name or your skin color to mean that you've got a criminal record, even if you don't. Uh, I think, you know, those type of things are going to certainly hold you back. I think we have to recognize that we're not starting from a, from a little playing field. Look, you can't have a race in which for the first nine of ten laps, you've weighed down one of the runners with weights and chains, and then on the last lap you let them go and you say, okay, now it's all equal. Right, yeah. I mean, it's it's expecting that we're starting from a neutral or a vacuum where, okay, we're just starting over, these things are done, let's go. And it doesn't look at the fact that for the vast majority of this country's history, if you weren't a white man, you weren't allowed to work, you weren't allowed to have pop, uh, property, you weren't allowed to do so many things that we take for granted now. Well, that's right. I mean, uh, you know, the Civil Rights Act was only, what, 60 years ago. Uh, there's people alive today. Uh, certainly their children are still suffering from that. And uh, with women as well. I mean, it wasn't so long ago that women were denied entrance into certain professions. Uh, they're still discriminated mm -hmm. against in some ways in terms of job opportunities. Uh, th that has consequences, uh, both uh, psychologically in terms of culture and attitude, but also real in terms of financial opportunities. Uh, Bob Puharic. Uh, says that he believes that welfare programs do not create a culture of dependency. Uh, how would you respond to that? Well, it, it, yes and no. I mean, the, the fact is there's evidence to suggest that whether uh, your parents work or not, what they think in terms, of, in terms of opportunity, whether they think that jobs are the way out or education is the way out of poverty, influences how their children will then behave when they become adults. There's uh, quite a bit of evidence to that degree. We also know, as I said earlier, that welfare availability does tend to discourage people from entering the labor force because of the way the phase-out of these programs tends to overlap with increased taxes. That's very interesting. Can you explain that a little bit more? Sure. The fact is, as I said earlier, the high marginal tax rate. When you get a job, you take that first job, you start paying taxes right away. You also begin to lose your benefits right away. And you combine that with the cost of going to work, and you can actually end up worse off. Right, yeah, which is... Incentives I, matter. Incentives matter. Libertarians believe incentives matter, which is why we should look at these kinds of things. Um, Lloyd says, I've seen no evidence supporting the claim of structural racism, etc., but the welfare state certainly has a negative impact, and there's nothing liberal about the welfare state. Can you respond to that? Sure. I, I mean, I think there's numerous studies out there that show that African Americans are still discriminated against in a host of, host of ways, including the way they're treated in public schools, the, the way the disciplinary system works in public schools, the criminal justice system, as I said earlier. Uh, blacks and whites, for example, use drugs at almost exactly the same rate, yet you're far more likely to be arrested if you're African American than if you're white. You know, if you're smoking a joint out in the suburbs and you're a white kid, uh, you know, in your college sweatshirt, uh, the police are going to take your joint away from you and let you go. If you do that in the inner city, they're going to haul you in. And, you know, that has a whole host of consequences in terms of your life from there on out. Right. It, also, it almost keeps adding on layers and layers and layers if you're in a situation where you don't have great housing and then you're in a school that's not so great and then you don't go to college and then you're in a bad neighborhood and like each of these things sort of like... They, they cascade down mm -hmm. uh, upon each other. I mean, the, the idea that, uh, you know, a poor black kid in inner city Baltimore has exactly the same opportunities as a uh, middle class white kid in Chevy Chase, Maryland. I mean, that's just not true. What do you think of uh, his comment that there's nothing liberal about the welfare state? 
Well, that's absolutely true. I mean, in the, in the sense that the welfare state is not about enabling people to become fully actualized human beings, be masters of their own fate, to sort of quote right. that Invictus poem on that. You know, if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, at the very bottom of it, there are these sort of physical needs of not starving to death. And the welfare state does a pretty good job of that. You know, we've reduced hunger significantly. We've, you know, we have people with shelter and clothing on their back and things like that. But at the top of that hierarchy is self-actualization. And that's the idea that you can become whatever it is that your talents will enable you to become. Uh, we don't do anything without that in the welfare state. In fact, we sort of push everything down to that bottom level. And don't allow people to actually pursue their dreams or get to that point where they can be the kind of person they want to be. We're just helping them maintain sort of basic subsistence level. We treat the poor like they're children getting an allowance, basically. You know, we'll parcel out a little bit for their food, a little bit for their health care, a little bit for their housing. But we really won't enable them to become full participants in the economy. Um, so Aretha says, aren't you a little out of your league here? Can a libertarian make a good faith argument on this topic? I don't see why a libertarian wouldn't be uh, able to make a good faith argument on this topic. After all, we believe inherently in the dignity and equality of every human being. That's the very nature of libertarianism is that no person has the right to control or, uh, of another person, that we are all self-owners, that we are all in charge of our own lives uh, on an equal basis. And so I, I think that libertarianism is about equality ultimately. I completely agree. Uh, on that beautiful statement, we're almost out of time. I just want to ask you one lesson or one takeaway that you'd really like people to get out of your book and this discussion. Nothing reduces poverty as much as economic growth. Uh, the fact is, for most of man history mankind, uh, we were desperately poor. And then along came modern industrial capitalism, and uh, that has lifted enormous numbers of people out of poverty. But that economic growth has to be inclusive. We have to make sure that the poor and people of color and people in marginalized communities can be participants in that economy. If they are, they will rise with it. Thank you so much. Uh, so thank all of you who tuned in online and sent in questions. Thank Michael Tanner for coming in for this discussion. The Inclusive Economy is now available across the nation in hardcover and ebook forms. You can also get it as an audiobook on Audible. Uh, please do tell us what you think about this and all other Cato books with hashtag Cato Books across social media. And please watch the hashtag Cato Connects for future live conversations from the Cato Studio. Thank you. Thank you.